Now, True Wealth, presented by Little John Financial Services. Here are David Little John and Katie Shook with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, it is that time. Your best Tuesday you've had all week and the best afternoon show you've heard all day. It is time for the True Wealth Radio Show. Of course, uh, as we often do, throw curveballs at you. Not in studio today is Katie. We you, miss you. I know. Uh, and so we won't be discussing, but anyway, uh, you know, thoughts are with the family. She'll uh, be back in town later, but I do have a ringer with me. So I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn, and we have brought in once again to join us, Mr. Matthew Dixon. Here we are. It's good so, to be here. Matt, love when you join us. Uh, and I always appreciate kind of a fresh perspective. You've, uh, I got a few years on you. Right. So, of course, uh, the uh, the the gray hair is the silver crown of wisdom. Uh, there's no gray hair up there. Oh, there's totally gray hair. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Uh, you know, it's fun because. Uh, so let me share with our listeners a little bit. I'm going to totally expose you for a second. Let's do it. Okay. So, you know, I've been now in the financial services biz for I guess I'm in my 21st year, maybe almost because I started Seems late impossible. 99. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of blows me away. It's a true story. Now, you are currently in the process of uh, studying up yep. to uh, get all of the appropriate credentials, and and I understand it's a fun process. It's <laughs> fun. That's a. I need to look that up in the dictionary because I think I might have the wrong definition of the word fun. <laughs> you know. I, one of the things I want our listeners to understand is there is a barrier to entry to there get into is. this profession. There is. And it's this, the hill is getting steeper, I believe. Uh, I have, now, of course, this was more than two decades ago that I took the majority of my licenses, right? And I've, and I've sort of, or credentialings or whatever you want to call them. They weren't really licenses. They were like certifications. But nevertheless, if you didn't have it, you couldn't. You couldn't be in the biz, right? So they matter. <laughs> so I don't know if it's, if it's not a license. I don't know what we should call it. But nevertheless, you have to clear this hurdle in order to be allowed into the industry. And I swear that hurdle's getting higher. Yeah, it's no longer the hurdles. It's the high jump. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Because you're. I've seen the, the coursework that you were going through. Now, I studied most of this over multiple license efforts right yeah and you seem it it seems like you're getting a lot of this right now uh you've we're talking this morning about estate planning yep right and now we've been on the program before but we're not talking about estate planning like hey you should get a will and a trust uh, although you probably should but we're talking estate planning like hey what are the federal exemption levels and how does the gift tax concept work when do you or don't you need to file gift tax returns uh how do you document who's allowed to get things or not uh so you're getting in the weeds i am and i'm learning a lot every single day right uh but but it's more than that just for our listeners benefit here for example uh you've been studying bonds and how they get priced yes right so there's something called I believe it's accretion is one of them. I think is the term mm-hmm. accreting bonds, but um, and the then coupon there's rate. or depreciating or something along those lines. There's mm-hmm. but but bonds will often trade at a premium or discount, and it's relative to time and it's relative to the interest rates of the marketplace. Right, which means if interest rates change, so do bond prices. Yes, and, and there's an actual way to calculate how they would change. Right, 
So that to me uh, is one of those, it's, it's sort of enigmatic. I mean, it's actually got a formula to it, but most of the time you just punch it in a calculator. You're probably learning how to break out the calculations all over again, huh? Yes. Yes. And now we won't even get into things like the dividend discount model uh, or some of the other ratios that, uh, like, you, I don't think you're going to have to know how to calculate a sharp ratio or anything like that. They do. They do ask you. you That's for now the sharp. in there? Yeah, it, it's okay. in there. Okay. So, can you tell our listeners what a sharp ratio is? Oh, man. The sharp ratio, I believe. Sorry, I was not trying to, to, to nail you on this one. Come back to me. Give yeah. me like sharp 10 ratio. Statistical gonna... measure of outperformance attributed to managers' investment selection. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember the actual equation. Oh, you're doing the equation. See, yeah. there he goes. He's making it more complicated. Now, definitions. Nobody wants to do math on air. Oh, it's, <laughs> I have a math brain, so I'm going straight to the equation for it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that. This is really quite relevant. Before the show, Matthew and I were talking a little bit about what can we really share with our listeners today. And there has been something that is genuinely weighing on me. I don't know why necessarily, but there's just been something that's coming up again and again. It's sort of a recurring theme. And I think it's, well, it may be because of the numbers that are getting thrown around these days. When we, when we start talking about trillions of dollars and billionaires, and that's sort of the regular news these days, it, it really can set off these bells and whistles in people's minds for trying to keep up with the Joneses in one yep. form or fashion. And what struck me is that it is very easy culturally for us to get sort of suckered into the game of more, right? Yes, and I see more as a really dangerous game. It is. Right? There goes the risk. <laughs> well, and not just that, but how do you win? Where's the goal line? Right. You know, there's the, more is just, oh, I got to there. Well, then there must be more. And it, it can really change the way you engage as an investor. So what I want to do today is get us back to home base a little bit and talk about some of the blocking and tackling. For a lot of you out there listening, this this is going to be familiar, and this may be something that you've kind of counseled others on. But I want to remind you, you're not crazy. And for the rest of you out there, you're crazy. You know who you are. <laughs> so the I, I love doing that, by the way. Which of our listeners is out there saying, like, oh, he got me? Yeah. Uh, so... Investing by its nature is something that typically takes time, right? When you look at the most successful investors historically, they almost all have one thing in common. It didn't happen overnight. Right. Right. Because how do you invest in something that just becomes an instant overnight success? It's it's much more speculative in nature. Now I suppose you could say that, well, people invested their time in internet startups and then they, you know, sort of won the lottery in terms of, uh, you know, rocket ship valuation or something. But I think we're really uh, probably stretching the term at that point because I don't know that I think of investing, or maybe I should say more like stock investors. I mean, we just, if we talk about stock investors, okay. very few stock investors get rich overnight. But they usually do pretty well getting rich over time. Right. So today let's talk about blocking and tackling. 
Matt, okay. you've been in the books. You've been going through this stuff. Um, let me quiz you a little bit. And, okay. And for our listeners, let's uh, first of all, uh, what are some of the key things that you think somebody should think through as they are becoming an investor? Like as a personal investor from home or just investing with a company? Elaborate let's let's there a start bit. with uh, concept of investing. So if you were, uh, okay. I'm not talking about with a company or like not how, which investments, but let's talk about the, a framework. Okay. Okay. So I think that there are a, a handful of things. First of all, risk, mm -hmm. right? What does risk really mean to investors? You, know, you kind of hinted at this earlier, right? When I said the game of more and what the first thing you said was, uh Oh, there goes the risk equation. Yeah. What do you mean? I mean, I think when I, for me personally, when I'm thinking about risk, you've got your large capitalization companies where you can go and you can stay a little bit safer and you've got your super small cap stuff that you can get into and your your opportunity to gain in a small capitalization opportunity is a lot higher and in why, theory why do you figure that is like what's the what's the market telling you Right. I want to I want all moment? of our listeners to think this way, by the way. OK. Uh, so I'm again, I'm I didn't prep Matt for this on purpose because I, I want I, I think a lot of our listeners are going to go through some of the process that you are, too. Yeah. Which is OK. So the first thing is there's this market capitalization difference between large cap and small cap companies. I made the mistake personally, and I don't know how much I can go into this on the radio. I but. think it's fair game if it's you. Okay. We're not making yeah. we're not advising other people on this. Right. In so fact, maybe don't do this. <laughs> I just sold off some shares of Apple, right? Mm -hmm. And I took my profits and I reinvested my earnings into some small capitalization companies. And I got greedy. I said, "Hey, I see that this is doing really well." I've already got a 20% return here. I want to go to 40 or 60. And so this company's smaller. There's more risk involved because they're not as established as Apple. But I wanted more return, and I wanted it faster. So I put some money there, and over the last month, they've dipped a little bit. Whereas if I would have just left my money in Apple, they went up another 5%. So I risked that 5% return for a 40% return. And it hasn't played out so far. But. So far. So there, there are so many things that are going on here that are fun to unpack as an investment pro. Right. Okay? So the first one is the assumptions around the risk, right? Like big companies must be less risk than a small company. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily true, no. but typically, True. On a broad scale. Right. On a broad scale, yeah. typically true. And it makes sense because the big company didn't get big by accident. Right. right. They've been doing some things that helped it grow. However, it's not the case that just because a company is big, it's going to be successful. That's right? true. We've seen a lot of huge companies we've seen in the S&P 500 fail. Right. They're gone. They're not here anymore. And we've also seen a lot of turnover, like big companies that were a firm, a, a previous era that maybe aren't relevant today right uh, i was speaking with some folks today about sears yeah right? sears was sort of the amazon of the what 30s and 40s and 50s yeah i mean the sears catalog and the distribution network they had but it was this retail network that was 
I mean, you'd get a phone book worth of products you could go through. They were telling me you could get live monkeys from Sears. I don't think you can get that on Amazon, by the way. Maybe I'm mistaken, but I have not found eBay, maybe, but yeah, not Amazon. Live monkey seems like it's a tricky one. I feel like, uh, you know, Scarface, I'm going to get a tiger. I'm like, what? No, you can't get a tiger. <laughs> Mike Tyson can get you a tiger. Okay. I don't know him, but I, you know, I'll find Kevin Bacon and somebody will know him through him, though. There you go. So you get the idea when we're, we're talking about how things change. So big companies aren't inherently safer, but they typically are. Right. So. That is one element uh, of risk is, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to take it a step okay. further for our listeners, right? To help you kind of get a handle on how the investment world assesses risk, but they're going to make me take our obscene profit break first. So we'll do that. And when we come back, we're going to, we're going to talk about yours and you're an investor. What are we going to do at risk? And then we're going to add the other two elements to it as well. But we got to take this break first. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matthew Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back from our Obscene Profit Breaks. This is Dave Littlejohn with Matt Dixon in studio, and you got the True Wealth Show. If you're just joining us, we are unpacking some of the back-to-basics rules of investing. And the first step is you better understand investment risk. And for all of you listening, I've been telling a lot of you folks out there, back-to-basics is we're, we're literally kind of remind folks that we don't want to get suckered into becoming either a speculator or seeking risk by accident, okay? So in order to, to understand it, we better know what risk is so we know how to recognize it and how to manage it, when we can avoid it, when we need to manage it, right? And then we're gonna talk about some of the other things that we do to mitigate it, okay? But that's the back to the basics here. And one of the first is you better understand risk. So Matt, I asked you the question earlier and you started us down the path of small companies versus big. Why did you go there in your mind? I went there in my mind because dealing with a lot of my personal friends, I have a large group of friends that is always talking about how am I going to turn the largest profit in the shortest amount of time? Ah. And they always gravitate towards the most risky investment that they can find. Is this the YOLO trend? I think it is. I think that's what it is. And I, Well, can you tell our listeners what the heck am I talking about? You're talking about you only live once. Yep. And I've seen it time and time again. I think Dogecoin was a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone that I talked to was buy and hold. I'm just going to, this is my, you know, my savings. I'm putting all of my savings in this. And when I'm done, I'm going to be a millionaire. And I heard that from more than one person. Mm-hmm. And so I saw people taking thousands of dollars and pushing that into Dogecoin and just leaving it there. And even though that they might have had a five or 600% return, they left it. And they said that five or 600% is going to be 10,000%. Mm-hmm. I'm confident. They left it alone. Diamond hands. And I, I'm over here, you know, just investing maybe a hundred dollars a month into various stocks that I think look promising, trying to diversify that out the best that I can. Um, you know, maybe buying an ETF here, um, some regular common shares over here and trying to 
spread my money apart, whereas everyone that I'm watching is throwing everything that they have in one spot, and they are completely refusing to take a profit. All right, so what is going on with this behavior? Right, let's unpack. I think this it's generational. Bit. I think. Well, it's I, certainly it's generational. Some of it is, uh, I think, also uh, when we talk generational, this, this is you, you got a group of I'll call them younger. You know, I want to call them kids, but you know, just young adults that say, "Hey, I can do this." Right, so I'm going to, and so it's this really highly concentrated position. Okay, that's the first okay. thing. When we talk about investing, now here's a funny expression that maybe a lot of you haven't heard, right? If you want to get rich as an investor, concentrate. But if you want to stay rich, diversify. That's a good way, and I think the listeners really need to hammer that point home. Yes. Uh, the misconception here, I mean, a lot of wealth is created in the stock market. But just understand what happens when you concentrate in your holdings in maybe one position. Here's the this is a real illustration, okay? And this is a visual illustration of a mathematical concept. Okay. okay? So think about flipping a coin. In theory, it should be 50-50, right? Yep. Now there are a couple of things that work. Every time I flip a coin, my sample is a 50-50 chance, right? Yeah. And a lot of people don't get the experimental versus theoretical probability. It's just it flies over their head. So keep talking. I right. think they need to hear this. So there's the next element to this is that you have a sequencing logic, if you will. Like right. what's the probability of flipping heads a hundred times in a row? Right. It's should be functionally zero. It's not. In theory, you really could have fifty coin flips of heads in a row. And we've seen similar stuff at the casino where it hits black fifteen times in a row right. and you see everyone yeah. throwing it on red. It can actually happen even though individual sample size it's it's 50/50 on every single probability set right every yep. to every single coin flip it's 50/50 but the probability of having 20 in a row is pretty low but when you've had 15 blacks in a row and the probability of the next one being red is it 50/50 technically yes but in gaming theory no right that's the thing is that the odds aren't the same depending on which way you're slicing and dicing the odds now when we talk about investing, let's talk about when you have a single holding, you have one coin flip, one set of odds. That's a good way to look at it. Okay. If you have two, then you have two coin flips, 50-50 for each one. The probability that both go down simultaneously is mechanically only 25%. Yes. But now in gaming theory, it would be a little different. In investment theory, which I'm now making up, that's not a real term, but in reality, if you've done research and homework and you've got two companies, the probability of both of them simultaneously failing is less than 25%. Because you don't get an all or nothing experience. You get a little up or a little down also. So the likelihood of it completely catastrophically failing is lower than 25%. Right. So you're already getting benefit from your diversification with only two stocks. Right. Here's the interesting thing about it. You know, if you go to three stocks, it's three coins flipping. The likelihood of three tails, if you will, is getting statistically pretty low. By the time you're flipping 20 stocks at a time, you're, you've gone from, say, a 50% standard deviation, which is one coin flip, 50-50, right? Mm -hmm. To about, I'm going to say, somewhere in the neighborhood of about an 18 to 20 standard deviation percent. 
So the, the, the likelihood, and, and that's actually, it's well lower than that for an all or nothing result, right? The, the likelihood yeah. of everything failing simultaneously is statistically really low. Here's where it gets particularly interesting though. Did you know that there's some real diminishing marginal return to diversification beyond somewhere between 20 and 30 stocks? Really? Yeah. Uh, statistically speaking, there's a negligible difference, and I'm defining negligible as say under 3% difference in standard okay. deviation between 25, or let's call it a 30 stock portfolio and a thousand stock portfolio. Really, I would have not guessed that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because again, the stocks are rarely a binary result. It's not all, uh, it's like 100% loss or 100% gain. Yeah. It's this idea that there are cycles where they'll go up or down a little bit. And this is why I tell people often- investing, When you mean cycles, like 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 tech is doing well. Yeah. So you're saying like, like you're gonna have maybe- Yeah, tech goes up, tech comes down a little bit because money moves around in the market for different opportunity sets. Okay. And so if, if people think that tech is a little expensive for the conditions, let me give a, a real world example for yeah. a minute, but let me clarify this. Not investment advice. I'm not telling you to act on this. And so anybody that does, I'm going to bring this show back up and I'm going to play this clip of me saying, I'm not telling you to act on this, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about what our investment committees observed. Okay. okay. When interest rates decline, that is favorable for big tech as what we have seen because uh, the cost of capital is lower. And for growth companies that aren't paying dividends, they can access more money and borrow more to continue to grow and invest in what they're doing. You said when interest rates are down. When interest rates are down. But interest rates have been up. So interest rates, and interestingly, tech is doing well. have been dropping. If you look at them compared to two weeks ago, 10-year treasury has declined somewhat Okay. as tech has recovered. And financials tend to behave the opposite. When, when interest rates are very low, there's very little margin for financial companies typically. The companies that have done okay are usually diversified financial companies that also have trading. So you look at company banks that have investment banking branches, they are market makers in stocks, they make money off of the transactions. Okay. But the banking functions themselves less margin. So lower interest rates harder to profit cuz Banks make the spread on the interest they pay you versus the interest they collect lending it to others. Now, if I, I could be mistaken here, but if I remember right, banks have been doing really well in the market lately. So everything has been doing really well for the last year. Banks, okay. banks had been doing a lot better this so year kind until of the last few weeks. Yeah, bank, yeah. banks year to date have looked pretty strong, as has energy, right? Yes. But in the last week, energy was the weakest performing sector of the S&P 500. Okay. So, but for the year, it's the strongest performing sector. Okay. okay. And that's just taking the numbers from J.P. Morgan. Okay. Um, so, what with this as a backdrop, we could we could recognize some cyclicality here. This this is, but this is the whole reason why I it bugs me when people say, "Well, investing is gambling." And so, well, yeah. gambling, the odds are against you, right? When you go to the casino, is the casino you know, is the house gambling? I get where you're going with right. this. Yeah. I would say because this the house really is not. isn't they gambling. They have favorable odds. They it, know what they're into. Yeah, right? I mean, the odds if, are on their side. If you look in this, is it 12% that the market averages over so, the last So, depending on how you measure historically, it's drifted around a little bit because the period from 1999 to 2009 was the first year in ever that the S&P 500 had a negative 10-year holding period. Okay. 
Now, granted, in 20, 2009, from March 9th at the bottom till uh, the end of that year, it went up like 40% or something insane. Yeah. So, you know, the 11-year average was still okay. Right. But so that's historical not really... averages between 11 and 12 percent so, for large caps and 12 and 13 for small typically or something along those lines don't fact check me on right so calls. if we're in that 12 percent ballpark that doesn't really sound like a gamble to me that just sounds like a good investment well typically speaking that is how it is played out right what you have is sequence of return risk right what yeah. if we what if you come in right at the top and then COVID hits and you know the yeah. market goes down by 35 percent ah so that brings in the next way that you mitigate risk dollar cost averaging dollar cost averaging and time yeah right if you liquidate your investments when they are down you lock in losses right right this is no secret no i'm not this i'm not not but i think showering you with amazing wisdom here but it's funny how people will panic and make decisions emotionally through those cycles and capture losses and then i use the term codify right it's like yes writing it down etching it in concrete it's bad news yeah <laughs> so uh if now does that mean you should never sell when your holdings are down trick question matt should no. you ever sell you should sell there are times to sell okay but one one example would be if you've had some huge capital gains and you're in a really dicey spot with one of your investments, you could liquefy that position, take a capital loss on that to help offset some of those capital gains. Mm-hmm. So that would be a good time to sell. Right. So that is a strategic tax move for all of our listeners. But you don't, get, described. you don't want to get caught anchoring. And I right. think we've all been guilty of that. So, and all right, you, you this, should I talk to you about this on the break and then you drop it on our listeners I, and they I just have went, to. what? What do you mean? Anchoring would be when you get personally involved in a position and you feel like you can't get out. You've anchored yourself in and you're committed to it. You're saying, I'm staying here. So we call it anchoring bias and it happens with the price. Hey, I bought Apple for, let's let's pick a fictional stock. There you go. I bought ABC stock and it was $25 a share, but now it's fallen to $15 a share. Well, I don't want to sell it. Because I bought it and I've got this loss, so I'm just going to hold on to it, or I'm going to buy some more and try to average my cost down, so that maybe my cost is no longer $25 per share average. You know, I'll buy uh, another hundred shares at 15. I'll average my cost at $20, and now I got 200 shares. Yeah. Right. And what you're hoping is that it'll just get back to where it came from. Anchoring bias is dangerous. Yes. It's it's dangerous because you can make something sale proof. Right, a sale-proof yeah. investment is something where you're just going to blindly hang on to it regardless of conditions. Because, well, when it's down, I won't sell it because I need it to get back to where it was. And when it gets back to where it was, why should I sell it? It's working again. Yeah. Right. So it's it's a dangerous spot to put yourself as an investor. And now, I've seen the opposite of that too. I've had a coworker that came up to me and said, "Look at how much I've made on this. I can't get rid of it." Well, that's no, that's the same story, right? I mean, that's the, yeah. I've got so much profit, I don't want to take that off the books. So, how do we address anchoring bias? It looks like you're putting on the headphones to take us to to a yeah, break. Yeah, we do. We take a break and then we come back. I'm saying I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna talk to uh, all of you listeners about how do you keep or how do you try to avoid getting stuck with a stock. That okay. and more when we come back. We got to take obscene profit break first. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. 
and Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Uh, I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me in studio today... Matthew Dixon. And we are talking about sort of back to basics, but not, right? We, we've been talking about how should you be managing risk as an investor? And, and it start well, we're really talking about a lot of the elements of investing. First is how do you avoid or manage risks? And so first we had to define risk. And we, we're kind of all over the board with it, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but... Think about risk as volatility, right? How much does an investment swing up or down? The higher risk element involved, the more quickly and more violently the price can move higher or lower. Uh, The interesting thing is risk goes, you can have upside risk. Just nobody, nobody's mad about it, right? If you make yeah. more money, nobody goes like, oh, no, I can't believe that happened. Right? It's all the losses are what we care about. The upside excursion, no big deal. So downside risk matters. And then the timing. How long are these cycles? You know, something loses money and you have to wait 10 years for the price to recover, or are you going to have to wait 10 days for the price to recover? Right. Right. So that's what made the COVID scenario very interesting is, you know, the, the markets fell fast, like three, four weeks, about a 30% decline for the S&P 500. And then over the next six months, it uh, more than recovered. It was like a three-month recovery. It was really remarkable how violent uh, 2020 was as an investor year. The right? big it was swing. actually a positive year, but it had this huge drawdown and recovery. That's a big risk event, right? Yeah. And it's also what we call a tail risk event. Tail risk. I haven't heard that one yeah. before. So tail risk comes from a bell curve. Like, you know, when you look at yeah. a bell curve, there's yeah. the big, thick part, and then there's the, the fine edges that are out on either side. Those are the tails of the bell curve. And in theory, they extend out sort of to infinity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least when you have large sample sizes. And so the, the, the when you get way out there on the, the, the thin edges of the, the bell curve, those are the tails. And so tail risk is the, the bad side typically because it's you know the risk of losses that are uh, beyond typical. And COVID was a beyond typical loss. Right. Yeah. It's not never happened. It's not unheard of. But statistically, you know, we're in the five percent of the time something like that happens. Ninety five percent of the time, the markets don't drop that far. Yeah. You know, most of the time they're, you know, they go up a little, they go down a little, but they how it says like going upstairs with a yo-yo, right? So anyway, that's that's important for managing risk. You talked a little bit about Matt uh, about uh, we're talking about anchoring bias, right? How do you prevent uh, anchoring bias? Is when you buy something. And then you, you kind of get stuck on the price you paid for it, and you make all the decisions based on the price you paid for it. So there's a couple things that we want to talk about. Um, one of them being, you know, how might you manage yourself around anchoring bias? I think I actually I got a text message. I'm this might be throwing you a curveball, but I think this kind of applies. Okay. So a Hit listener texted me, and they they have a question for you, and they said, "Quote here at one uh, at what point." Do I sell when I'm losing? Do I set a limit or do I leave it and let it ride? So how do I figure out what a good stock to buy is and what can I watch out for? That was the question. Oh, these are fun questions. And I think this ties into where you're going with this a little so bit. So I think it does a little. So let's finish the let's kind of incorporate all of this okay. into your listen to the listener's question. And and again, 
Uh, we're going to talk about these are sort of analysis considerations, mm -hmm. and so we're going to use these generically. And and do realize that this is in concert with lots of things. It could take multiple shows to to right. try to break down the discipline involved in stock analysis or investment analysis. But let's talk about some of the highlights today that I would consider as you are you know studying how to do this. And and do keep in mind we can't give investment advice on this program. Correct. So, uh, I, th I think the first part of it, back to the anchoring bias question. Yeah. Okay. So you you bought something for a certain price and it's falling. Now, it first is there's a there's a question or uh, the listener asks, should I set a limit price? Now, what that means is, and I think in this case they're talking about a stop limit. Yes. There are also I think buy so. limits, but what that means is, if uh, the price, I can go to a a, a brokerage service, and that's just uh, the the place that buys or sells a stock for me. Okay. Okay. Yep. So uh, if you're online and you've heard like E Trade or TD Ameritrade or Robinhood or all these different, th they're brokerage services that enable somebody to purchase a or sell an investment, and they provide custody of that in for their service, right? So you, mm -hmm. know, you have an account with TD Ameritrade and you go on their system and you buy a stock. It's held in your TD Ameritrade account, and you get a statement from them shows you that they're the ones. It's your stock, but they're sort of holding it and keeping the records for you. Okay, and this is not a pitch for any of these companies. They're, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. So, a limit order says if the price falls to that point, because this was a stop limit. That means we're stopping the price. If 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 it's going down, we want to sort of stop the damage. That's yes. an easy way to mentally think about it. But it means that we want to trigger a sell if the price hits or goes below a certain limit that you're setting. And the stop limit is the limit that you set. So if the price goes below that, then it converts and activates an order. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the stop limit order means that the price first has to cross that price threshold. So it's going down. So the price has to go lower than that threshold. So it hits it or goes below it. And then it activates an order that becomes a live order and tells the system that's using it, go sell. ahead and try to sell this stock. And it, because it's a limit order, it sell it at this price. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, there's a danger there, right? If there the market's is. going down, it could just keep going and you might not get your stock sold. Yep. Right? So you're still losing money because the market price passed you and kept going lower. And so you didn't get triggered on your stop order. Or you didn't get executed is what it's called. Execute means the trade happened. You got triggered, meaning the trade went live, but it wasn't executed because the price moved outside of the acceptable ranges of your limit. Which you is nice because you could set it to 6% and say, I'm willing to risk 6% here. It's going to sell it for me, and right. I'm walking away with a little owie. Right. But, I mean, on the flip side of that, it could go up and... And, it, you, and you know you never sell it, right? But it's also here's the thought that the thing that people miss is if it were to fall suddenly by fifteen percent and you have a six percent stop loss, yeah, you would have your order executed, but then the price would still be ten percent lower and you never got sold out because it just flew right past your order. Oh, if the price gapped lower, it could activate the order but not execute it. So this has my brain going to options to hedge against. A loss. Yeah, whole different animal. And do we want to go into the weeds? I I'm going to stay away from that okay. for a minute because I want to come back to this this issue here with 
that our listeners ask. I've kind of given you some of the reasons. I like limit orders. Okay. But I don't like stop limit orders. I don't inherently like them either. <laughs> and, and, and one of the reasons is because of, of this sort of gotcha. We still use them, right? But, but they require babysitting. What I mean they is do. you still need to watch them. You can't just sort of put it on there and walk away and hope everything is going to be hunky-dory. And here's the other thing. There's a lot of electronic trading. I mean, there's a lot of computerized trading, and there's a lot of trading algorithms. And many of them are designed to sort of sniff out small orders. So the retail investor that places a stop order, oftentimes uh, a computerized larger player will test the market with a series of small orders and sort of drive the price down with a series of small orders and then trigger your sales and then immediately turn around and do a, a buy program and drive the price right back up just after you got sold out. So uh, a lot of retail investors are mechanically at a disadvantage to large institutional players That's and can get harmed in that environment. So I always say, you know, proceed with caution. Yeah. I like targets for things because trading is really, really hard. I mean, that to makes do. sense though, if you think about it. If you see a handful of small orders there and you can buy down below that and then right. scoop it back up, why wouldn't you? And so how do you protect yourself from this? One is you need to make sure that the things that you are trying to trade are highly liquid. Lots and lots of participants. Like if you go try to trade in the ETF of the SPY, that's the S&P 500 yep. ETF, that trades in the mazillions of dollars all the time. So right. you know, if you're trading $100,000 in that thing, it's probably just going to kind of get caught up in the froth. You're asking the listeners to pay attention to the volume. If a, if a Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it does matter. Okay. Now, there's another thing back to, and, and so we've had a couple of parts of your listeners' question now, right? Yeah. I mean, one of them was about stop losses. And then the other is, you know, where do you set a price? That's going to be pretty dependent, right? It depends on the circumstance and the position. I don't think we have time to really unpack a ton of that on this show because it's going to be industry dependent and investment dependent. Right. So, you know, you like the rules for not Microsoft, as simple as take your 10% and risk your 5%. You know? I don't think it is. Yeah. Right. That's and this fair. is coming from a guy that's literally built trading algos. Yeah. So, um, that could be a whole series. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff there for nerds. So, uh, but so I, I don't think we go there, but I do want to give our listeners one more shot at or bite at the apple, if you will, around this idea remember the anchoring bias you bought something the price dropped and now you're stuck right and so like well how do i manage this loss or how do i kind of get out of my head on the uh anchoring bias so i can try to make a better decision Should we give them a hint before we go to the break no give we're just going to straight okay. up go to the break All and right. then make you guys wait for the answer on the flip side so uh when we come back we're still gonna you know we're gonna get out of our heads and get it on paper this is uh the, the next step in anchoring bias, but we got to take a break first. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to The True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang. Welcome back to the home stretch of The True Wealth Show. Uh, joining me in studio today, Mr. Matt Dixon. And a reminder if you, have if you haven't got the whole thing, there have been a bunch of gems we've been uh, sort of dropping, talking about risk management and how to sort of do a, I guess, 
you, you may be doing a great job, but just things to consider when you're managing risk in your investment strategy. Uh, so check out our podcast. It'll be available tomorrow. You can go to littlejohnfs.com, F as in financial, S as in services, because, you know, Fs and Ss sound on the radio. Uh, so littlejohnfs.com, and under the Educate tab, you're going to see, because we have Educate, Plan, and Invest. Go check out, go under the Educate deal. Podcasts are all going to be there, all right? And you can, you can check out what we've been up to. We have we've been hunting around anchoring bias, Matt, I'm not picking on you, but I'm going to use you as an example because okay. you're here. Yeah. You, you told our listeners that you you, you trimmed Apple. I did. You, you had a win. I and did. And so you, you, you trimmed some, and then you went and you bought something else that's been non-disclosed, yep. which is fine. And it hasn't worked out the way you thought. Right. Okay. How long are you into this trade? I think I'm in it for... I think I'm in three months. Okay, and, and everybody hear how what I just did there? I kind of snuck it on him because I just called it a trade, and he just sort of bought into it. Like, sure, is it a trade or an investment? This for me is an investment, and I'm in it for the long haul. All right, see, he's cheating again. I'm gonna I'm gonna get him trained on this. You'll see, because during the break I ask you, Matt, what should every investor ask themselves if you've bought a stock and mm -hmm. you're upside down in it? What what uh, this is me saying, I think everybody should ask themselves this question. If you could go back in time, would you still purchase it? So, no. <laughs> if you went back in time, you're like, no, I'd short it if I could do it now. <laughs> so, I said, if you had to right now, if you could forget everything up to this point, yeah. what would you do today? If you, were, if you didn't own it today, what would you do? If I didn't own it today? Yeah, would you still buy it today? I would, but I might let it sink a little bit further. Ah, so this and this is the interesting element at play here, right? It, because your investment thesis has changed. Right. I had some money sitting there not doing anything, and I said, "Hey, I've already done well. I'm going to put a little bit more at this." Mm -hmm. And it, and I felt like it could go a little bit lower, but it went. You know, another five or six percent lower than I expected. I I can tell everybody here. I have had some real uh, losers. Okay, I've uh, as a as a investor and trader personally, I don't practice on customers. That's not how that works. So if yes. I'm going to test something, I test it on me. It's like you better eat your own cooking. Yeah. Every now and then, it's pretty rancid. So those are tough lessons. I have learned some tough lessons as an investor. Uh, so I love the fact that you're out there and you're learning from it. A couple things that I would suggest okay. for all of our listeners, but I think for you as well, when you are learning, try to uh, journal or document what you did. That's you a know, good what, idea. What were you thinking? How did you make the decision so that you can try to revisit it and and recover the brain space you were in when it happened to, to evaluate how the decision worked out and see if there's anything that you can learn from it. Yeah. Right, so the, I think that's that's something important too. And the other is, it's okay to set rules in advance. In fact, it's probably a really good idea if you're going into something that is a trade, set price targets for trades, and be diligent about those. Because if you change a trade into an investment, you're back to anchoring bias, right? You're starting yeah. to make things sale-proof because your greed is getting in the way. Now. There's another example of a profession. You remember at the beginning of the show, I, I, not on the show, Matt, but before we started, I, I talked about this, an example of emotional compromise. I don't remember it, but keep going and so, I'll, I'll get there. 
if you if, realize that uh, an emergency room physician, they don't allow oh, them to operate yes. on their own kid. Yeah. Okay. Now, is that because they don't care about their kid? No. No, heavens no. What happens they care too is much. it's because you lose clinical detachment. Clinical detachment is really important. It probably sounds awful. Some of you listening are going to say, like, wait a second, I want them to care. No, no, they totally care. Uh, doctors want to do a great job, but if you become too emotionally compromised, you stop using the logic functions and start to go to other processes, mental shortcuts to get things done. And so the mistakes happen when you're compromised. We've seen it in Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> yeah, so you know it's real. Yeah. Uh, so the, the point is that anything that you can do to extract the emotions from the process is ultimately likely to benefit you. And so if you struggle with that, that's literally why financial professionals often exist. It's not so much that a financial pro makes a way better decision than you. It's that they make a less emotional decision being clinical. And they're, in, in most cases, studies will show that it's the mistake avoidance where the value is added. Is this where I chime in and say, so if someone needs help, who do they call? And what's that phone number? <laughs> oh my gosh, he's nailed it. So <laughs> uh, so what you can do, this is one of those where if you were still trying to figure this stuff out, uh, first I'm going to tell you that we've got other resources. Like Go to our YouTube channel. We have some training for folks that are just getting started. Uh, but if you are an investor and you are looking for help, give our offices a call. You can reach us at 541-375-0898. So, but anyway, the music's to play, and so we are out of time. It always goes fast, huh? It does. All right. Well, look, gang, uh, until next time, get out there. And, of course, we encourage you to invest. Uh, but uh, if it's not something you're going to do yourself, get somebody qualified to help. But if it's not us, find somebody you can trust. Uh, until next time, this has been Dave Littlejohn. And Matthew Dixon. And you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brooks Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.